If I asked you to think of some great artists, who springs to mind? I imagine it'd be familiar names such as Da Vinci, Monet, Picasso, Pollock. Would you be able to name 10 women from anywhere? Maybe just five. What about even one? Shamefully, generations of significant female artists remain overlooked, despite decades of attempts to right this wrong. And that's where Katie Hessel comes in. She's an art historian, curator and broadcaster who has dedicated much of the last decade to championing great women artists. And she's now released a fantastic book titled The Story of Art Without Men, which deserves a place on every bookshelf. Katie, welcome to Late Night Live. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's an honour to be here. Tell us how you came to realise just how serious the gender gap in the art world was, because I believe it started at an art fair back in about 2015. It was, Tracy. It was almost seven years to the day, which is extraordinary. And I have always loved art ever since a child and never even questioned anything until I was 21 years old, having studied art history at A-level for my BA at university. And suddenly when I got to an art fair, I realised that out of all the artworks around me, not a single one was by a woman. And then I had to ask myself, could I even name, like you, 10 women artists off the top of my head? And the thing is, the answer was no. And to be honest, I was mainly just shocked at myself and my own ignorance about not having realised the gender disparity in the art world. And so I wanted to do something about it. So that night when I got home, I honestly just couldn't sleep. I was so exasperated by what I just witnessed. And so I set up an Instagram account called The Great Women Artists. I literally typed the words women artists on to Instagram, nothing appeared. And so I started my own because when you're 21 and you don't have a gallery or anything, how else are you meant to start? Well, thank goodness it happened when you were 21 and not 41. So (laughs) I I hadn't realised actually how systemic the problem was until I read the shocking statistics included in your book. And then I realised they actually aren't all that different to the sphere that I usually work in, international sport. The statistics are remarkably the same, but just walk us through some of your facts and figures. So I'm I'm British, so I'm going to give a bit of a British point of view for this. But, for example, our National Gallery of Art in London, just 1%, 1% of the collection is dedicated to female artists. The Royal Academy of Arts, one of the oldest and most prestigious institutions across the globe, has never hosted a female artist solo exhibition in their main space in their 250-year-plus history. Um, Similarly, when we think about the market, women's art just goes for 10%, generally speaking, compared to male artists. And actually, to give an example, the highest living artist to go at auction is Jenny Savile, and her work went for just 12% of David Hockney, who is the highest earning male artist. So, you know, in a way, the art market acts as a kind of microcosm for the gender disparity in the world at large. So I'm not surprised, you know, Tracy, you saying that it's actually quite similar to sport, because the thing is, these statistics are reflected worldwide, despite the industry. Yes, and the title of your book, The Story of Art Without Men, is also a nod to the fact that women were left almost entirely out of what is considered the Bible of art history. Exactly, Gombrich's story of art, because the thing is, it had to be the story of art without men, because the story of art is the story of art without women. There's a very famous book called The Story of Art, which was first published in 1950 by E.H. Gombrich, and it is a book that I grew up reading. It's a fantastically accessible, beautifully written, produced image-heavy book that really gives you an insight, an introduction into art history. And, you know, anyone can pick up this book. 
But the thing is, he excluded women artists and only the 16th edition includes just one. So I thought I want to rewrite this. But also, not only is my mission to address the gender imbalance, it's also to say to people, I want everyone to be feel like they are involved in this subject. Art history is for everyone. It's not elitist, it's accessible. And so like Gombrich's very kind of linear and clear story of art, I've tried to do the same to really introduce people to movements, what they were, how they came about. But by situating women artists in their social and political context, I've also avoided putting them in relation to their male counterparts, which is so often how the history books or even exhibitions today have written in that way. Katie, what were the main barriers to women becoming artists and have they changed much over time? Well, of course, I mean, you know, when we think about 500 years ago, they have, we've had rapid progressions. We've even had rapid progressions in the last few years. I mean, I'd say last five years even, just in terms of who was at the helm of some of these institutions. The fact that we have a woman at the head of the Tate, the Louvre, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. is extraordinary, which means the story is changing because of those people at the top whose mission it is to actually spread or highlight representation. But, you know, when we think about artists and the Renaissance, of Baroque or pre-20th century, really, they were so restricted. Not only were women banned from walking around churches or galleries or anything unchaperoned, but also they were banished from the life room, which is where they could study the anatomy from life, study the nude from life, which helped them understand the body, which when we think about the history of art, we think of you know, Bible stories, mythological stories. They needed that basic training to even just, first of all, make a picture. And artworks by women have also been misattributed to men all too frequently, haven't they? As we've seen in (laughs) literature and other spheres as well. They have. And, you know, it's scandalous, really. In the 19th century, you know, dealers were known to sort of scratch out an artist's name and replace it, a woman artist's name, and replace it with a male contemporary. I mean, only now are so many works actually coming to light. There's a great story, well, a kind of shocking, staggeringly sort of horrific story, was uh, in the Met in 1917. They bought a work that they thought was by Jacques-Louis David, the kind of the the leader of neoclassicism, some might say, um, for $120,000, when it was under the impression that it was by Jacques-Louis David. Only in the 50s did they realise it was actually misattributed to a woman. And then in the 90s, they found out it was another woman artist who had done it, one of his former students. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves, would the Met have paid that price point for a woman artist? (laughs) Good question. Um, Take us back to the Renaissance and introduce us to Anguissola and Fontana. Oh, my goodness. So Anguissola is an extraordinary artist, Sophonisba Anguissola. So the thing is, oftentimes women artists had to have a sort of powerful man looking after them uh, in terms of maybe their father was an artist or maybe they, their father was rich and he was able to get them, you know, basic training. And that was the case with Sophonisba Anguissola. But the thing is, they were not able, they were not admitted to the life room. So they really had to work with what they've got. So women artists often worked in still life, smaller domestic scenes, self-portraits and portraits. But the thing is, they monopolized these markets and also interwove the sort of canny ways of showing that they were also capable of other genres as well. So Sofonisba Anguissola, for example, there's this fantastic painting called The Chess Game from the 1550s. And not only does she show a group of women in a very conversational game of chess, but also in the background, she's interwoven mountainous and landscape scenes, which shows that she is capable of tackling these. Similarly, she created this amazing double self-portrait 
of her and her teacher, Bernardino Campi. And already, as early as 1550, is she discussing the power structures between man and woman and teacher and student. It's, so your, your listeners will have to listen carefully to me because they, unless they Google the image, but let me explain it for you. So what you see is a picture of her teacher dictating her appearance. So her teacher painting a portrait of Sofonisba Anguissola. But then you look again and you realize it's actually Sofonisba dictating her teacher's appearance, dictating her appearance. <laughs> Not only has she painted herself 1.5 times as big as him, but she's got him painting the embellishment of her jacket, which is something normally assigned to an apprentice. And also as a recent pentimento uh, uncovered in the 1990s, she had actually painted her wrist meeting his as if she was guiding his hand around the canvas i mean it's extraordinary and nearly 500 years ago was this woman playing with power structures how wonderful some listeners might be familiar with uh, artemisia gentileschi who achieved fame during her lifetime but it wasn't an easy road for her was it it wasn't, you know, even just as a woman, it wasn't an easy road, but she somehow tackled and overcame all these barriers. Artemisa Gentileschi was profound. She was very much associated with the Baroque movement, which was very popular at the cusp of the 17th century. You've got to think of these sort of biblical stories infused with theatricality and drama and stunning light effects. Chiaroscuro is a sort of buzzword that often comes up, these kind of contrasts between light and dark. And she was active during this time and painted really from a woman's point of view. She tackled subjects such as, you know, the, the, the semi-nude Susanna bathing in her garden when two lecherous men try and seduce her. But what she does, instead of, as, instead of portraying her as a sort of sexualized Susanna, she shows her shielding her body away from these men as if to give insight as to what life might have been like in 17th century Rome. And of course, when she was 18, she was raped by a friend of her father, an artist called Agostino Tassi. And she was, and, and this this sexual assault resulted in an excruciating seven-month trial where she was tortured with uh, ropes tied around her fingers known as a sibile, a sort of modern-day lie detector, let's say. But you've got to think, ropes tied around her fingers for an artist, that is the most abhorrent persecution. Anyway, she, she, he was found guilty, although he avo avoided punishment by being protected by the Pope. And Artemisa Gentileschi moved to Florence. And this is really where she thrived. She painted these visceral, bloody, brilliant, just just such triumphant portrayals of Judith beheading Holofernes and her, and her skill for storytelling and painting was just extraordinary. And she's now considered a feminist icon. She is, because I think of what she gave truth to. You know, when you look at these works, she doesn't shy away from the woman being in control. She doesn't shy away from actually a woman's point of view, which helps us, you know, understand that, you know, we, we can't look at the history of art from a male perspective. Otherwise, we get this skewed understanding of history of what we're looking at. The fact that, you know, the 1% of the National Gallery being all male artists, I don't I, don't, I shouldn't see the, 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 the visualization of history from a male perspective. I need to see other perspectives as well. Otherwise, it's just not giving us the full understanding. One artist that broke all kinds of boundaries, and, and this one really intrigues me, was the African-American sculptor Edmonia Lewis. Tell us about her. Yeah, she was extraordinary. I mean, she was, you know, brought up in the sort of 1850s and 1860s in America. And as an African-American, obviously, that was extremely challenging. Um, she was sort of became part of the abolitionist circle in Boston and then made enough money to actually 
take a boat to Rome, arriving there in the 1860s. And this is extraordinary because Edmonia Lewis worked in marble, actually one of the very few artists who I can even find, you know, pre-20th century woman artists working in marble. Because the thing about marble is, first of all, you had to have such a sort of acute and rigorous um, knowledge of anatomy to create these sculptures in mar marble. But also marble is expensive. And the patrons who are going to commission these works are often going to commission men because they are, you know, great, greater skilled in these because they have more access to this. But she made these extraordinary sort of classically beautiful with these uh, sculptures, with these coiled hairs and beautiful sort of folds. But what she did, instead of immortalizing classical or mythological subjects she actually spoke about the abolition of slavery she she made these incredible she made this incredible sculpture called forever free of this african-american man and woman you know breaking from their chains looking up into hope in the future and how extraordinary to actually use a classical style but apply vital political narratives at the time so did europe open their doors to her when she arrived I mean, she, they, they did to an extent, but, you know, she still faced incredible racism, obviously. Um, but, you know, what's extraordinary is the fact that she is now considered in the world today as this total trailblazer. But, of course, life was tough for a woman generally. I mean, a woman of colour, so much more so. Still today, I mean, we are fighting these boundaries to the present day. Absolutely. I'm speaking with Katie Hessel, art historian, curator, broadcaster and author of The Story of Art Without Men. Katie, let's jump forward a little bit. As women started to gain more freedom after the First World War, you say they turned their gaze on themselves with self-portraits. Why was this so significant? Oh, I love that. So I, so I um, begin my part two, which is kind of the 20th century, um, talking about what made art modern. And the thing is, is that, of course, when we think of modern art, we think of you know, the eradication of hierarchies between art forms, or we look at these kind of um, abs almost abstract de depictions of every day with these kind of broken up canvases with these flickers and shards of paint. But actually what they, d what I think made art modern was the participation of women artists, because Finally, they had some kind of independence, they had liberation, they had freedom to be as they want. They could travel unchaperoned, they could apply to state-funded art schools, and they could earn their own money and claim rooms of their own. And so when you see them actually depicting themselves through a portrait, you see that liberation, you see that freedom for the very first time. And they immortalise themselves in all sorts of poses and geysers. You know, someone like Suzanne Valadon, she almost reinterprets herself as Venus, but she's clothed and she's pushed her books at the back to the end of the bed and she's got a cigarette hanging out her mouth. <laughs> I mean, that just exudes this independence. It's brilliant. We get a sense of their personality. They're making paintings for themselves and immortalising themselves on their terms. Well, I just love how they're jumping out of your mouth because uh, you're, <laughs> you're really bringing them to life for us. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. Uh, there were two women in particular that pushed the boundaries of art in this interwar period. Introduce us to Hannah Hock and an absolute character, Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven. Yes, fantastic pronunciation. Um, so Hannah Hock was extraordinary. She um, very much came to the fore in the kind of cusp of the 1920s and she was associated with a movement called Dada. And Dada sort of translates to kind of nothing at all because it really emerged in the aftermath of World War One. And the thing about what, what was what Germany was like in the after World War One? It was desolate. You know, this. How can you even comprehend art after this time? How can you kind of put into visualizations the tumult, the tumult of politics and everything? So she worked with collage. 
which is so interesting because she spliced up all these images from magazines, contemporary newspapers, journals, everything, and actually put them together as if to sort of evoke life and what was happening as this broken machine that was trying to attempt to turn itself, you know, with a wheel. And she was extraordinary, but she'd poke fun at all these politicians of the day by, you know, putting, um, you know, putting the politi head of politicians attached to a skirt or something and all these kind of satire of the day. And also she was brilliant at being an advocate for, you know, queer queer people but also women and actually showing the kind of strength of all these people and giving them kind of space in our history which is extraordinary baroness elsa von feitag loringhoven was working at the same time um she mainly worked in new york city at the beginning of the 1910s and i mean she got her name the baroness from actually marrying a cash-stricken baron so she wasn't <laughs> she was always actually very she wasn't from this illustrious background at all and so she really had to find her own way and she was amazing she used to kind of wander around the streets with blankets and stamps on her cheeks and carrots and, and as a hat and sort of tins around her um, as a bra and just you know this extraordinary almost performance artist and she used to recite these poems which she called ready-made poems and then she started finding these things called things like junk off the street and putting them in a museum and calling them art and she was obviously very good friends with Marcel Duchamp they used to attend salons together and actually there is this rumor well first of all we have actually evidence with this letter Marcel Duchamp writing to his sister saying that actually a woman had told him to submit a fountain into a museum, which must make us question, was it Baroness Elsa von Teglag Loringhoven's idea to put the urinal in a museum? <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> um, it was I'm, extraordinary. It would be. Um, I'm interested in whether women artists record moments of significance or deeply personal stories differently to their male equivalents. So how does the World War II photography of Lee Miller compare to others of her time, for instance? Well, I mean, you know, you've got to think about being a war photographer during World War II, you weren't even allowed on the front lines. So what Lee Miller did, actually, she went into hospitals and she went into sort of army camps and everything, and she looked at the women's contribution to war you know, and then actually when she did find herself at the forefront of all these different battles, she then documented it in such a sort of sensitive way. I mean, you know, I really argue in the book that there is nothing inherently different about art produced by any gender. It's more the fact that certain groups in society had different advantages, which means that they were, you know, they had different access. But what women did is they used the access they had and in turn showed us a side of history that is so often left out by the males. You also talk about the growing international recognition of some Aboriginal Australian artists, and in particular, you showcase the work of Emily Kama Nguore. Tell us about her. I mean, she was absolutely extraordinary. And when you see her work now, I mean, it just feels so, so contemporary. I mean, you know, she really came to the fore in the 80s and 90s, which is extraordinary, came to the world stage. And I think she even only started painting in her 70s, which is remarkable, and painted thousands of pictures with these just incredible swathes of movement and lusciousness in them. I mean, they sort of almost evoke the Australian landscape or something, the sort of spirituality of it. And it was really in the sort of 80s and 90s that the world actually, you know, opened, definitely the international galleries really opened up and spotlighted Australian Aboriginal art. Of course, artists have been making these for centuries, but, you know, the art world had to do a lot of catching up to do.
Yes, and there's still a lot that needs to be done and there's so many artists that I would love to speak to you about. I'm just going to have to send people the way of your book, The Story of Art Without (laughs) Men, published by Penguin. Katie Hessel, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tracy. I also recommend you check out uh, Katie's Instagram page and podcast, both called The Great Women Artists. G'day, potties. If you like to learn from history's mistakes as much as we do here at Edlinell, or you want the whole backstory on the big issues in the news, check out Rear Vision on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>